0: Started exploring the possibilities of making small batches of chocolate, I thought I was onto something. I had not heard of the world of bean-to-bar or craft or artisan chocolate. I was soon to realize that there had been a bean-to-bar industry long before me, and I soon learned to appreciate the craft that the pioneers before me created. The bean-to-bar chocolate world, at its root, is created to make lives better. Here at home, at the place of origin, and for all the places in between. I had the opportunity to do an apprenticeship with Mackenzie Rivers from MAP Chocolate, and now also The Next Batch School in the summer of 2018. I'd been on a quest to search deeper into my soul and figure out what the next chapter of my life was going to mean. Five years later, I'm very much still trying to figure that out. But the two weeks I spent with Mackenzie in Eugene, Oregon were two of the most transformative of my adult life. During the weekdays, we worked hard together, She graciously answered my zillions of questions, let me polish, mold, start batches of chocolate, and soak in all of her secrets. She is generous beyond belief. She has a deep desire to lift everyone up around her. She shares information freely. She lives her life and creates her chocolate with grace and respect for others and for the craft. But she also shares her opinions freely to start conversations that pertain to all levels of the chocolate industry. In the last few years, she created the Next Batch School. Here, makers from around the world can come to learn the basics of selecting beans, chocolate shop setup, all the way up to the secrets of crafting complicated chocolate bars with multiple ingredients and different kinds of chocolate. She is not making many chocolate bars anymore, but if you ever do find a MAP chocolate bar in a store or on her website, I cannot recommend highly enough that you snatch it quickly. Mackenzie is not only my mentor, but she has become a very close friend of mine. She is always there to bounce questions off, and when life in general is a struggle, she has also just quietly listened to my complaining. I hope that you enjoy this episode. It goes a little longer than normal, and we could have kept talking far longer than we did. It's not all chocolate, I promise. There are some life stories in there as well. So grab your favorite bar of chocolate and enjoy this episode with the Kenzie Rivers of MAP Chocolate and The Next Batch School. Hi, Mackenzie. Welcome to the Ohm Travelers podcast. How are you?
1: I'm great. How are you, Tyler? Thank I'm, you for having
0: me. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's really wonderful to have you. Um, we have a history now of five and a half years, and um, I I love you and I hate you for... The chocolate. Um, I'm sure we'll cover both today. Um, but real quick, just let everybody know um, where you're located and kind of the space that you're in right now, since, um, you know, the people that listen to this may not be super familiar with you from the chocolate world. So. All right.
1: Um, well, I'm in Eugene, Oregon, and um, we're in the Willamette Valley. Um kind of a rural part of town where I live, and I have a very tiny, I like to say the world's tiniest, chocolate kitchen. It's about, I think it's 60 or 70 square <laughs> feet.
2: Oh, geez.
0: And I complain about <laughs> 650. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it's really tiny, but um, I have maxed out the space. Everything's on wheels, except for you know, like the cabinets behind me. Um, it's amazing what you can do in a small space. when you have to. Um, and, you know, I teach chocolate making classes. You know, I'm not in full-scale production anymore. Although over the holidays last year, I did produce my normal amount of chocolate just for the holidays. Um, but I teach out of this kitchen. So having it cozy is great for, you know, at the
0: camera, yeah. That. Yeah. You've always made really good use of space. I remember in the last space that you were in when I was out there doing my <laughs> apprenticeship with you. Um, yeah. I mean, it was obviously much bigger, but every yeah. everything had its place and there was no clutter and <laughs> it was always very, very impressive. So your ability to use space efficiently, I am very jealous of. <laughs> so, um, I think at this point, Aside from all of the stories, you're you're best known for your footprint in the chocolate world. So, why chocolate?
1: Uh, you know, <laughs> I asked myself that. Every <laughs> Me <day>. too. <laughs> <laughs> I I you. Know, I did not come into the craft chocolate world as a chocolate fanatic or like a chocolate lover, chocolate collector. I, you know, I definitely wasn't from that direction. Um, Really for me, it is about cacao. I love cocoa beans. I I don't know how else to say it. I see them. I get excited right now Behind behind my phone, the camera I'm looking at, these bins I have of cocoa beans, and I just love them. And I don't know where that comes from. You know, I grew up with a farming background family, and I've been a farmer myself. I am the kind of person that comes springtime and it's time to buy the seeds, I hyperventilate. I'm like, <laughs> I want to grow every kind of lettuce, I want to grow 50 types of tomatoes. I've always been like that. And the very, from the very first time i had a garden i literally did grow like way too much of everything packed in, a, in a tiny space and so it has something to do with i think that me as this person is going to take this seed and i'm going to walk with it on part of its journey into becoming whatever it's here on the planet mm-hmm. to become i don't know how else to say because i thought of it i'm, I'm to this day you know, people are like, Ooh, you must eat a lot of chocolate. I mean, you probably get that too. Yes. I'm like, what? No, <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's the making of it. I love, but I, it's the making of it that I love, right. It's The chocolate is a great side effect, you yeah. know? So I yeah. think that's it.
0: I think one of, one of the things I have to sort of stop myself from doing is um, like when I'm roasting the beans, and they're going through the cooling tray right after they've come out of the roaster. It's like peanuts. Like I grab, I grab one and I, I eat it and I, and then I grab another and I eat it. And I have to stop myself because, you know, even though the chocolate with the sugar and the creaminess is so awesome, but that, um, I, yeah, I, I agree that, that bean, um, it's kind of probably what, what Jack and the beanstalk had when he, Threw them into the earth and the the vine grew. Um, it it, it yeah, it, it is a really magical thing. But um, for people that aren't familiar with cocoa beans, maybe just dis- can you elaborate on like what it is about them that gets you so excited?
1: Well, initially and and still to this day, it is the it is that revelation that that really if you're outside of the craft chocolate world, you're you're just, you know, a regular person and you're buying chocolate or eating a chocolate chip cookie or drinking a mocha or, you know, baking a cake or whatever. Like most people don't, don't realize that there's not just one flavor of chocolate. That it's not just from one type of cocoa bean grown in one place. And so that sort of delightful, oh my gosh, moment when I literally, you know, I thought I was going to look at coffee beans. And I walked in this warehouse with like 30 different types of cocoa beans. It had never occurred to me. And I had trained as a pastry chef. so I was around chocolate. You know, I, I was a baker. So I was around chocolate. Nobody had ever said, right? And it had never occurred to me to say, well, where do cocoa beans come from? And is there more than one type of cocoa bean? So it was that whole idea of like, what? If there's if I'm looking at beans from Peru and Nicaragua and Dominican Republic, you know, and Ecuador, Mexico, all in the same room, that must mean they have they have a different purpose. They all taste different. Mm-hmm. That just blew my mind, and even to this day, it is the thing that I find so compelling about working with the beans. They, they're all different. Right now, I have a batch um, from Ecuador. Um, Hacienda Victoria, they sent me a sample and, um, you know, it's, I kind of know, you know, I've worked with some Ecuador origins, so I have my thoughts about them and, you know, working with this origin, letting it be what it is and then seeing how it, you know, see what it's bringing to the table. It's just, to me, it's just amazing. I, I love it. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things about it that um, like you alluded to is when you have people and and, and I was the same way before, you know, I've told this story many times before we went to Grenada and certainly the second time I really tasted like really wonderful craft chocolate in Costa Rica. um, It was just one of those foods that we just take for granted. Like It just shows up on the shelf I had no idea. I, I never even once stopped to think about like what chocolate I just hadn't, you know, I had no idea. And then when you can start to see, I, th- I think one of my favorite things about the beans, like in their raw form is not yes, the end flavor and differences and stuff like that. But when you just look at them and when I have people to the shop and they, I, I start to open up the cans that I store them in, they're like, whoa, like the Madagascar is such a beautiful maroon color. And then you've got these deep brown Dominican Republic beans. And then the, you know, the Guatemala beans I used to work with were like twice the size of any other bean. They're enormous. (laughs) But you know, right from the start, you can see the complexity of, of the food product. And um, yeah, when you, when you get that finished product and you've got a few different origins um, you know, you can you can lay it out in front of people and and they can taste it, and their eyes just really go crazy and I think it, I love doing it with just the general public, but when I can sit down with with a chef who yeah. is like, Oh no, i just I buy it from you know Cisco or
2: Cisco. calibo <laughs> or
0: valrono i we just use hershey I'm like, oh, just give me five minutes and, sure. and 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 oftentimes, if they don't have the time, i'll just leave it. And then within a day I have a phone call and they're like, whoa, 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 what just happened? And I think that's one of the coolest things. So yeah. Um I love that. So in the last couple of years, you started the Next Batch School. Yep. Tell me um where that sort of came from and kind of describe what's what's going on with it, what like a person would expect and um just kind of talk about that for a second.
1: Well, I from the get go, I I don't know why. I don't know if it's my age. You know, I came I came into craft chocolate, probably wasn't one of the oldest makers. I think that's Degrees. <laughs> <laughs> but you know <laughs> not name,
0: not naming names or anything, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> he is the old dude. <laughs> but you know, I definitely it was like this it was like a young man's sport, right? And, um, not many women, and definitely I didn't see a lot of people my age. But anyway, so I think maybe because I was, I had worked, you know, for almost 20 years as a river guide in Grand Canyon. And my job there, my role was not just to row the boat and cook the food, but it really was to serve sort of as a guide. And it was to say, like, hey, let me tell you about these rocks. Let's talk about, wow, look at this waterfall, I'm rowing our boat into this tiny little hidden canyon so you can see the waterfall and see the planes going or whatever. You know, it was really, I, I love that aspect of being, of being a river guide there. So maybe because that's in my background, um, you know, this impulse, right, to share what I am thinking about, my insights, what I'm seeing, what I'm learning is really, where that whole teaching thing started and so on Instagram at the you know the early days I was there when I first started in 2015 and um you know it was like a lot of just sharing I loved talking about what I was experiencing every day and um and so that sort of grew as I started learning more and more I definitely started posting these more sort of informative posts and you know I had a lot of folks follow me and wanna make her disagreeing with me. Mm. All the all the things, right? Yeah. All the things. And so in twenty sixteen, um this um woman in Honduras, who is now, you know, she's a she's got like a great chocolate company and she's won lots of awards. She asked me if she could come and learn how to make chocolate mm-hmm. by my side. And so I was like, sure. So she flew out, um to again and spend some time with me in my kitchen, and I loved it. And shortly thereafter, another person asked, they were from New Mexico, could so they come?" Another woman said, "I love her honey chocolate." And so that person came, and I really just I loved, I loved it. I mean, as you know, when you apprentice with me, we would have this task list we needed to do, and I would start talking about something, and we would stand there for like two hours, yeah. right, just talking and thinking and That is part of, I think to me, that's the craft of it. It's not just there's this, you know, one, two, three, ABC way to do things. Mm -hmm. You're having to think about everything, every step of the way, the ingredients, the environment, the temperature, the shifting of the temperature. You know, the beans are coming in, different harvests, new origins. The, the sugar we're using, every single thing is something to think about. And I, I revel in that. So I like to share it. And um anyway, so then shortly after 2018, I hosted my first class. My first class was actually a, a women's roasting class. Um, mainly because I had attended a roasting class and it was myself and one of woman who'd been one of my students who came and and just a bunch of guys. Not that mm-hmm. there's anything wrong with guys in topic. But it really had this this air of we're the experts, just listen to what we have to say. Mm-hmm. Not a discourse or a dialogue and a lot of intimidation. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm afraid to ask these questions or when someone would ask the question, it was just like this, you know, Kind of, like, a shoot down, like, you're wrong, or literally wrong question. Person said wrong question, and it's like, whoa. So, for me, I thought there's got to be, you know, an, an alternative to that. So, anyway, so I started teaching in person classes. I did a roasting class, I did an inclusion craft class, and then I did the being to Bar intersection class. Um, I was doing that, and then, um, before 2020 before the pandemic i had tried to i was building out a new space you never saw it was bigger and the whole intention of this new space was bigger production kitchen for me but mainly a bigger a bigger um teaching kitchen mm-hmm. bigger teaching area and so that um you know put a lot of energy into it and all the money i think <laughs> um and uh Learn a big lesson on commercial leases and the people who, the people who write them and you don't have a lawyer check them. I don't have to say it. I yeah. learned a big lesson. Anyway, um long story short, I ended up that I had, I had canceled your life, read you. I didn't renew my lease on my kitchen that you had come and visited with. And I had four days to get all my stuff out, remove the sinks, do all that, set it back to its original state and cram my um, my chocolate kitchen into a storage unit. Mm-hmm. I had no kitchen to go to. And it was at the peak of my business where I was, my bars were in huge demand, more demand that I could produce for. I was gearing up for this whole and I had this, you know, big classes coming in. And um, you know, I literally just walked out to the area behind this little, <laughs> this little chocolate kitchen and I just cry my eyes out mm-hmm. I'm like I you can't be a taco maker if you don't have a space mm-hmm. what am I going to do and so I just said I'll figure something out and um for that time of the holidays I rented time in a commercial kitchen like a bakery where they let people rent space and I literally had like a four by four space and they wouldn't let me keep my Melangers overnight so what did, what
0: did you do in that case
1: I brought them home every night.
2: Oh, geez. They
1: would crying during the day and I'd bring them home and I winnowed at home and I roasted at home. with the melangers and tried to temper bars and it's like deck ovens going and heat. And I thought, oh. well, if this is how it's going to be. Yeah.
2: I'm,
1: I have to find a new career. And But then, so that was just for the holidays. And then I was teaching these, um, I had taught them in in-person classes at a demonstration kitchen in a really lovely shop here. They had food and a restaurant and they would do these, like, you know, food demonstrations. And I worked to Deal with them where I would teach bean-to-bar classes for them like a day, like a one-day kind of thing, introduction, chocolate and tastings, in exchange for using their demonstration kitchen to teach my classes. So I taught a couple classes where literally we're in the middle of the shop. People are shopping and they're coming over to the class. Oh, is that chocolate? You know, it was crazy. I mean, at the same time, it was, some of the most wonderful classes because it was this just this hubbub of energy. And I had a maker come from Turkey, these guys from France who now have a, a chocolate company um, down in uh, the Dominican Republic. And it was, it was just incredible. So anyway, but that was, I kind of went into the whole pandemic year on this, like, I can do this. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Hi. And then the pandemic hit, and I was supposed to do a class in Bangkok with with uh, gal, Nally, who's a socket maker. And we had, you know, 10 other makers who were going to go to Bangkok, and we were going to go to the markets and, and you know, go to a cacao farm and use use local produce and local foods for the inclusions. And Natalie and I, in January, both said, no this is coming down Mm -hmm. and no. And so we canceled the class and it was kind of early on. And I know people were really like, what? Yeah, Surprised because things weren't happening. So anyway, that happened. And I said, I have to move my classes online. So I did when, you know, that's a whole other, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how do you build a class online? How do you build a whole school online? So anyway, it's had, you know, it's had its evolution and um, that's where I am now. And so, I've had um, I'm up to ninety eight different countries. Wow! Every continent except for Antarctica. I'm waiting for some scientists. It's only a matter of time.
0: It's only time. <laughs> a matter of time.
1: Please take a class, you yeah. know. And um, so it's been amazing, and it's a whole, you know, it's a direction I really didn't see coming that it would be, yeah. You know, now, now,
0: yeah, I mean that's incredible to have people from all over the world and the stories that you can hear. Because I mean, even in the United States, like each of our experiences with chocolate is so different as far as makers yeah. go. You know, when I travel, I always try to find a bean to bar maker. And I, I, I randomly, we were in Boone, North Carolina, and I just happened upon one. Um, it just happened to be was in it, the. What was that? Was it? What, what say that again? Was
1: it? Was it named Megan?
0: No, it was a Damn guy. It. It was, no, it was a guy. Um and I can't I wish I could remember the name. Um I'm horrible with names in general. Um but um it's always it's always really neat to hear people's kind of um story and and what brought them to it cuz it's all very different. So I'm sh- I'm sure in in your case when you're dealing with people from all around the world it's it's got to be really really cool.
1: I hate it. I have to say, I
0: do. I love that part. Now, a lot of a lot of what we hear about um, ch- about chocolate is, you know, large scale. And I think when people think of, you know, chocolate maker, they think of huge machinery and big roasters, and you know, it's all over the grocery store shelves. But you've um, lately, especially, I've noticed, been talking a lot about, you know, less factory, more small batch. So. Yeah. Maybe just can you can you maybe speak to that for a second and sort of what that means and um kind of where you're coming from with that.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I you know I was small batch when I was even in my high production and we and you've probably experienced this too, Tyler. Where you're like, you know, I've made a hundred bars and I sold them, and if I could just make you know a thousand more. Right? I could take that next leap in, you know, revenue and I could buy this, that, or whatever equipment. And so there's this whole process of making the chocolate and then trying to make more of it mm-hmm. and plugging in the equipment that can help us make more of it. And so I realized I got to a place in 2018 or you know, I couldn't keep up with the demand. I was working really hard, mostly seven days a week. And I thought, what I need, I need one of those, I need one of those big, fancy tempering machines, right? Because I'm hand-tempering, and I love doing it, and I'm doing all these really complicated inclusion bars that most makers weren't doing, swirls of chocolate, mm. you know, things that can't be remelted if you screw them up.
2: <laughs> Been there. <laughs> and, so,
1: and I thought, you know, I've got to have one of those tempering machines. So I... I reached out to a person, Clay Gordon, we've met him, who's in chocolate. Um, And Clay had had given me some really great feedback and uh, called me like, I think it was 2017 or 2017, like, maker of the year or something, you know. He loved a bar I made, squirrel staff. He was very, you know, very supportive. And I reached out to him because he works a lot with repping, like for big equipment companies. And so he's like, well, McKinsey, you're not You can't use those temper machines. I was like, wait, what do you mean? And he's like, well, because you won't be able to do your inclusion bar. He's like, that's not what you need. You don't Mm -hmm. need that. So he literally had a floor sample that I wanted to buy. And he was like, no, no, you can't. You can't buy it. It's Mm -hmm. not going to work for you. And it made me rethink. And so every time I get to a place in chocolate where it's something that I can't do, but I have a I had the sense of I need to do this. I, I flip it on his head. And so I literally realized in hence making me rethink it a whole different way of productivity of how I could make my batches, put some in a melter, temper, have enough molds, have the rolling racks, and just keep it going even on a, as a small one-person show. At the time, I did... I have a gal who came in wrapped bars, and she did polish mold for me, and that was a huge. I have to say, mm-hmm. that's like a huge thing to help with your production flow. So the reason, so for me, I love the hands-on part of it. Mm-hmm. When I'm tempering bars, there are times I am, I am just cracking myself up. I'm thinking, if people could see this, they would be like, "What the heck?" I mean, it's like this. It's like you know Jackson Pollock like, like slinging the paint out of through the canvas, and I, I love it. I just didn't want to let go of that. I didn't want. I don't like big machines, mm-hmm. right? I didn't want to be like, you know, you see like the dictator guys, and you see these guys are like, they're all proud of like, I'm wearing grease today, and I, <laughs> I took apart this, you know, 1920s conch that I paid, hundred and fifty thousand dollars for, and needs complete remaking. That is just not me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not at all. And so I thought if I don't, if it's not the machinery that I love, and there's nothing wrong with loving that machinery. It's beautiful. Those guys, those guys are great. Yeah. Them, <laughs> it's... Right? They are. And they, they thrive on yeah. that. They have built literally, right, this yeah. factory around this equipment. That's where they thrive. Not me. And I know that I'm not the only one. At the same time, I also saw, and there's been this increase of light, this push, this push from within craft chocolate, that that is the way you have to be. Mm-hmm. You have to scale big.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There's, along with that push, there is this horrible myth that makers like Dandelion, or even Dick Taylor, these guys, French broad, are big. They built themselves these mm-hmm. bigger facilities Because they sold enough bars to do it. That's just not true. Mm -hmm. The money, dandelions, did did not come, 75,000 square foot um, real estate in San Francisco did not come from selling craft pocket bars, Mm -hmm. right? Right. It came from the the owner's investment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people have family investors, people take on investors. Rocka, you know, they have a VC firm that's invested in them. Mm -hmm. But there's this myth, right? Somehow that there are these little crab chocolate makers, and then they're gonna like sell a bunch of bars, mass like mass brothers, right? They're making chocolate in their apartment, and the next thing you know, they've got a facility in LA, <laughs> in London, right. and one in New York. Right. Did not come from the bars, yeah. but that that seems to be this whole like, like this myth, right? Mm-hmm. So and I've got in that hamster wheel too. I've got to get bigger. I've got to have more mold. I need that bigger temper machine. At the same time, the way that the way that the bigger makers are selling bars, you look at them all, they all have massive wholesale accounts yeah. and distributors.
0: Yeah, And so. They have a whole wholesale team that is out they have a approaching. And I was on a, I was on a call for like an awards thing a few weeks ago and it, I, I just expected to see, and i sorry to cut you off, but to this point, I just no. expected to see, I was excited to actually see what these people look like. And then it's their wholesale, it's, the, it's their wholesale vice president or their wholesale rep. I'm like, oh my God, like what, what am I doing?
1: <laughs> Why am I here? So, and so that is really, yeah. you know, uh, Megan Giller did this list a few years back. Her list, her personal, my favorite, like 50 craft talking makers. And she, you know, I was super excited to be on that list, right? First of all, I'm super excited because there's tiny map chocolate, and there's like guitars and vodka, yeah, right. right? And yeah. it's like there's me and my gal who comes in between her classes at yeah. the University of Oregon to or at my bar. right? And it's like a company with like a lot of employees and backing. And so I loved that she had this list, and she also she clarified what she called as like tiny or medium or right. whatever by like, the number of employees we had and so when I looked at that list I think I think she renewed it this is like in 2020 I looked at that list and 11 makers on the list were, were tiny
2: mm-hmm.
1: small 11 out of 50 were tiny which is incredible
2: that is really good. you
1: know and so the thing is I looked at wholesale myself and I was on this treadmill where I was making bars to sell at wholesale. And that is one, a great tool to get known. to how a lot of people found me. So they'd mm-hmm. walk in a shop in San Francisco or wherever, and they would buy my bar, and then they might come to my website, right? that It was a great tool. However, I realized just doing the numbers, you know, if, if my bar is $12 retail, and I'm selling it to the wholesale account for $6, and my cost, let's just say, rounded off, in my cost is $3. I'm making $3 out of a wholesale bar. But if I'm selling that bar $12 retail, I make $9. Right. There Right. is a really big difference in $3. In that.
0: Yeah. Or not even $9 because you know, you're not, you're still not taking out rent or utilities. or Yeah. You know, that's just, just cost ingredient costs. Cost. Yeah, right, right.
1: Yeah. It's, that's just cost of the packaging and the ingredients and not factoring everything else. And so I looked at those numbers and one of my early customers, Uhm, um, is an angel investor and was an invested in some big well-known companies in San Francisco. And she, she was a super supporter and I emailed her and said, can I talk to you and ask you some question? But I just need your advice. And she's not in chocolate. So I really wanted a mm-hmm. business expert yeah. who's not in chocolate. And we had a great conversation for a couple hours. And her thing was, you've got to lose the wholesale. Yeah. you've got to lose it yeah you will not make it right and I listened to her mm-hmm. and so I decided I projected this plan of I'm going to cut my wholesale accounts off the ones that pay me late that I had to badger about paying me you know I was just like you are now cut off I'm no longer <laughs> I'm no longer I'm so sorry I'm no right. longer able to buy wholesale views right. I had some nice way of saying it but I cut them off and because her thing was like look First of all, you make them pay you up front. She's like, why should you loan
2: mm-hmm.
1: loan Zaybars in New York City money? You're loaning them money if you're letting them pay you on time, right? She's like, don't do that. Make them pay up front. So I listened to her. I did it. I changed the, my wholesale approach. I made the wholesale account. Once a month, I said, this is what I'm offering for wholesale. And you're going to have to order it quickly because you know it's going to go. Yeah, And so they would order it. And I would ship it out to them two weeks later. So they would order and pay me online. No checks, any of that. They're paying me online so through their credit card. And then I knew exactly how many bars I needed to make, right? I also had factors in that how many do I want to make, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, so literally bars could sell out because I knew how much I could produce, mm-hmm. right? And again, in a month and what bars I wanted to produce. So I came up with a, pro- a new product line every month, which In retail is probably the craziest thing anyone's ever heard of. But that wasn't a marketing strategy. Mm -hmm. My wholesale accounts knew. Jack at Taco Cover in San Francisco, the Meadow, they knew. When my bars hit the shelf, they were gone. Mm -hmm. There was going to be a a hole there. So they were really excited that I was coming out with new flavors and inclusion bars and other makers really weren't at the time. So it was, you know, it was a business decision on right. my part right yeah anyway, so anyway but i realized right like this whole bar thing can only go so far right mm-hmm. at the same time once i took the scale and i wasn't reliant relying on the wholesale the wholesale was like money in the door i know i have all my bills are mm-hmm. paid for the month right, right? Yeah. um and then everything else then people were going to be shops and finding the bars and I worked really hard at increasing because that was tricky, right? Increasing those online retail sales was very tricky. I mean, you, they don't just come to you and there's a lot of competition out there because of like SEO and different mm-hmm. things. So it I worked at that pretty hard, but I really, I found this joy again and talking that I hadn't felt for a while, mm. right? It was that early on joy. Whenever someone would buy something, I'd be like, what? Somebody bought my chocolate. Yeah. It's just like, it's so exciting. Right. Yeah. And then you're terrified because you're like, oh my God, they bought my chocolate.
2: Right. right. Yeah.
1: So I, I decided, right, that joy is of value. The joy of me as a maker doing something that I deeply care about is of value to the world. And so I I decided I wanted to be able to help other <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to be able to help other makers do that too, right? Mm-hmm. I really do believe the world needs all that chocolate. I'm fine with the the dictators and the vodka. They bring attention to chocolate. They do a great job. They're you know, but they're different. They they are big craft chocolate. Mm-hmm. And so I started, you know, a lot of people have talked like what we can't call ourselves craft chocolate anymore because Ritter Sport calls their bar. craft chocolate.
2: Like <laughs> it's great,
1: right? right? Like like it's just a marketing term. And, yeah. and sadly for us in craft chocolate, we don't have someone like this, you know, especially coffee yeah. right association. We don't have someone who's really in our core because FCIA, the Fine Chocolate Industry Association, they're Initially funded by big chocolate, mm-hmm. right? And big chocolate wants to be, they want people to think that they are what little chocolate is. Right. And I don't know why those top tier craft socket makers, the dandelions and those people haven't ever really pushed back with it, pushed back against, like, we need our own association.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They're never going to. And so I'm not going to start some association, but I am going to help makers do what we're calling slow batch chocolate because the whole purpose of those machines right the whole purpose of big tempering machines of automated depositors Mm -hmm. of cooling lines of automated bar wrapping machines all the big makers are using those right the whole purpose of that is to make the chocolate faster to make more chocolate and you've got to make it faster and so it's still craft chocolate but it's on a faster scale right and it's still completely necessary in the world. Um, But slow-batch chocolate is its own thing. And so I'm, you know, I'm trying to help makers around the world figure out their way, their unique way to make slow-batch chocolate and to make a living doing it, to have a livelihood. Which, (laughs) as you know, as you know better than anybody, right? There's a lot of work. when You are dedicated to your craft. It's not easy. It's right. some, you know. Some days I'm like, maybe I should just get a job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. like, maybe that would be easier—a paycheck. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, so that's that's where I'm. That's where I'm at as far as like you know, craft chocolate, full that chocolate.
0: Yeah, I yeah, I think you touched on a few things. I, I made a couple of notes as we were going through this. You know, <laughs> I think the the time that I spent with you and and. I think this apprenticeship um, situation, which I know you're not really doing that so much anymore, but that those two weeks for me were probably two of the most important weeks I've spent doing something in my life as far as shaping. I mean, I, I, I think, and I say this to a lot of people now that ask about chocolate and all this, about even about other things, but there's no, we don't have apprentice. apprenticeship opportunities anymore, you know, back 40, 50, 60 years ago. And long before that, like, that's how you learned something. You apprenticed with a woodworker, with an iron worker, with uh, a roofer, whatever it might be, you you know, you, you apprenticed and, and that's how you learned the skill. And when I walked into, I was so nervous. I still remember. I was so nervous coming out. I'd never been to Eugene, which (laughs) You know what? And I I barely knew where it was. Thank God for University of Oregon. But um, you know, you, when I when I flew in I, I picked up my rental car, the, I remember the first thing I did when I got there was I just went to find where you were, like because I because <laughs> I, I, I didn't I didn't want to show up late the next day.
1: Yeah,
0: but. You and know, there's I, not
1: even a sign out front. It was the mine, little snail.
0: There was the little snail on the yeah. on the hanger, um, or the coke. Maybe it wasn't a snail. It was a, uh, the cocoa it's pod the snail. Apple. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. Which, apple. which, which. Looking back on it, that speaks to exactly what you're doing right now. Um, yeah. But I walked in with so many issues in my chocolate making. Mind you, I'd only been doing it for two and a half months when I came out to see you. But I that I didn't know how to temper, and I was. Mixing three different, four different ways of tempering. And it was, it was a mess. It was getting very frustrating. And I was at the point of, you know, throwing my hands up and saying, forget this. Cause the first batch I ever did was perfect. Probably, maybe even the best batch I've ever made. But then, I, but then the following 15 were just a complete disaster. Um, but the one thing that I did, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that I walked away from that time with on top of this honing skills was that, And I think this speaks to more than just chocolate, but I always, I always remind myself when I start moving too quickly, I'm like, you can't rush the chocolate. The chocolate (laughs) will take whatever time the chocolate needs. And I think that to your point, when we, you know, we just had that long discussion about big versus small, um, speeding up the process only increases your cost. And that's one thing that I've realized as I've tried to start to scale a little bit. And, you know, Tiffany and I have had, you know, countless conversations about this. um, And I wish I always had a better answer for her. But, you know, as you scale up and you start to produce more at at a surface level, unless you're smart about what you're doing, scaling up only increases costs and ingredient cost. I mean, the ingredient cost doesn't go down just because you make more chocolate. You'd like to think it does because in most industries, you make a bigger pot of something and it costs you less, but that's not the case in chocolate, or at least I haven't figured out how to make it that way. So, um, but I think the biggest thing, and I I like that you still preach this, is just slowing down. Like the times that, you know, and as a yoga person and person who really like deeply needs meditation, The slowing, that's probably one of my favorite parts about making chocolate is that it's a constant reminder that we need to slow down and slow down life, slow down our speed. Don't try to do like four different things at once because you're going to end up screwing three, maybe four of them up, Um, you know, focus on one thing and get it done. So I think, you know, that's hugely important and I hope your students take that away, you know. When they walk away from class. So, um, okay. So I know you've told these stories a million times, but they don't ever get old hearing about. So (laughs) tell me about, and tell everybody that's listening about your life on the river. How, how did that happen? How long did you do it? Like just, it's, you know, one of those things that I think a lot of people, especially now with. The show Yellowstone out. You just think about, you know, cowboys <laughs> with hats tipped down their face and just on their on their rucksack, looking up at the stars. So, um, what was that experience like?
1: Um. So, I it all starts. I was an English major in college, <laughs> <laughs> English and art history, and um, I, I had a, like a life changing event my mother died when I was um, a junior in college R- really unexpectedly quick it was expected it quick quickly and I um, I went on a river trip this group of people called the owls Club uh, I don't even I don't even know why this one gal said come with us I think she'd heard me crying on the phone in the hall anyway she's like we're going on this river trip Really what it was is they needed somebody with a car. <laughs> 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 so I had a car. So we drove. And I went to Wake Forest, which is in North Carolina. And we drove down to the river trip. And I did not even know what it was, what we were doing, where we were going. I really was in a big day, right? But it was like, just go. So we went and... This river, the way it worked is this one section was kind of easy. And they usually had people like they had a guide in a raft, the first raft, and one or two guides in boats in the middle. And then passengers could sort of guide their own raft. And then when they got to the big rapids, they'd have you pull over, and a guy would jump in your raft and guide you through. And so um, the trip leader looked at our group, myself, the scout, and these guys, and he pointed to me, he goes, you're the guide. I didn't even know what he was talking about. So I just did what they told me to do. At lunch that day, I distinctly remember standing, everyone's eating. I just sit on the side of the river. I watch this branch. You know, the river was flowing by. The branch was dipping in and out. And it was like those moments you have when you're, I think when you're young, you start to have them when you realize like you're, you're a part of this world, but mm-hmm. it's unfurling in front of you. And it's always a big end. Though. It was like that waking up to like, where am I? <laughs> what am I doing? You know? And so I, um, I love being on the remote. And when we got back, took a one day trip, got back. Um, the guys were all like, Hey, you sure did a good job. <laughs> <getting> <laughs> <that boat." laughs> and, um, I was like, well, I want to, I want to do this as a summer job. Are you hiring anybody? I mean, I was like, what am I saying? You know? <laughs> and so, um, I went back to school and I went back down like a week or two later and talked to the manager. And <laughs> one of those guys was like, hey, she's, she's guided a boat before. She <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it was like, oh my God. And the manager goes, can you, can you drive a truck? And I was like, yes. I, I just alive, You know, can you cook? Because we also need a breakfast cook. And I'm like, oh yeah, I can cook. So, just basically a limo job. So, my first job as a river guide was at, you know, on the Satuta River, which is known for the movie deliverance was <laughs> so, there. It's actually kind of a tricky river to guide on. At the time, there were like three women, right? Three women guides. I mean, yeah, this is, in the eighties. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, um, anyway, I loved it.
2: And I, you know,
1: I just fell into that whole river of God in life. And, um, two years later, I was a troop leader for a company on that river. And this really crazy looking car pulled up with kayaks. And this guy named Eric hurt. He's from New York and another guy, um, from Syracuse um, Steve got out and they were like hey we want to piggyback you know on your trip going down this section 4 really tricky and um, oh they had a rowing raft they, they were going to row it and we were like what all the guides were like very macho mm-hmm. they were like you can't row this river you know <laughs> and, <but> I, <laughs> I was tripling that day and I'm like yeah we'll give you a ride um, so we did and it was, I wanted, cause I wanted to see, right? I wanted to see them up. So they run and to thank me afterwards, um, Eric said, Hey, you know, we're actually Grand Canyon guys and I can give you a trip in the Grand Canyon. And I was like, awesome. So couple weeks later, I got this random phone call. <laughs> Sorry, that now. was
0: Newton. <laughs> That's
1: okay. The days of pay phones, no cell phones. So I got this random phone call from Eric. And he's like, okay, I've got your trip. Here it is. Get out to Flagstaff on this date. I'm like, okay. So I did. And I remember stepping off the plane with Flagstaff, Arizona, going, wait, what? There are pine trees here. <laughs> <laughs> <You> <laughs> i thought it was trees, just like, desert? Those-
0: <laughs> there's <laughs> cactus <laughs> everywhere.
1: Totally confused. Yeah. Like, where am I? And I'm... Um, I thought it was really weird when we went at the warehouse. And the next day, when they were loading everything, that this guy who was a trip leader kept saying to me, Well, blah, 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 your boat, da, 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 your boat. And I was like, What is this, this are you talking to? And so when we got to the put in, which was like this other amazing thing, all these companies loading their boats, the water was really high because that was a big flood year. Mm-hmm. And so the, all the guys were all nervous. I didn't know to be nervous. And so this guy said, the tripitor goes, okay, pick out your oars. And I was like, is he talking to me? And Eric goes, um, yeah, don't tell him that you've never rowed before, but you're the baggage boatman. And I was like, what the heck? I thought I was just going on a trip. I, thought I was going on a trip. And you had everybody's
0: stuff on your raft.
1: Uh, yeah, I it was a big boat, twenty two feet long. Wow. It was twelve foot twelve foot long horse. Oh my gosh. Giant. Really heavy. And um I was like, he, Eric goes, do not tell him. Do not tell him he's never <laughs> rode before. He goes, just Stick with me. Now Eric Hurts is kind of a character. You should just Google his name sometimes. He's a character. Anyway, he would sit on the back of his raft, like asleep with the passengers rolling with a hat on, like I am supposed to be taking directions from him. Anyway, I rode. There wasn't enough food. I was starving to death. I remember like thinking this is like the worst hell I've ever experienced. I'm terrified. My hands were gripping, blisters everywhere. Mm-hmm. But I loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. When the first night, literally I'm right underneath the stars in the Grand Canyon and I was like, I have twelve more days ahead of me. Oh, wow. I, I was completely in love with it. So I, um, in those days, you had to do a certain number of baggage trips mm-hmm. in order to be a paid boatman, and I um, got my baggage trips in really quickly over the next couple of years. And then I literally called the owner of the company every day. His wife started answering the phone, and she'd be like, "No, he's not home." Because I was just trying to get on that roster.
0: Oh man.
2: <laughs> and,
1: Anyway, so that's how I did it. I ended up becoming a Grand Canyon River Guide, and was there, um, I did my last trip when I was just entering, um, just at the end of my fifth month, being pregnant with my son. I was. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, so I was there, you know, a long time, and during that time, nineteen years, old, a long time, right? Um, I ended up. Working for the Park Service too, which was great. And what, what did you do for
0: the Park Service?
1: Well, they were doing the first ever um, environmental impact study, which would, of course, the study would go to becoming an EIS, a CIS statement of the river corridor. They were studying, um, looking for archaeological sites between the where the water hits the shore and the historical old high water line. Okay. And so they were surveying it. So I would row. I was with a crew of river guides. And we would row the researchers, you know, archaeologists, to these points. And they would get out and they had to survey. And some days we could only row 20 feet down the river. <clears throat> the trips were all 21 days long. And they were in the wintertime. So it was a whole other thing, you know. So <clears throat> um, there was a two-year period where I worked on the river year-round wow. for two years. So I do the commercial season in the summer and i go back to working for the park service. And then through that, I got to be a river guide um, for the um, Hopi elders, which was taken down the river by the park service. And so I was a river guide for those trips. And then that's what led me to going to law school. <laughs> and, um, so, yeah, it's one of those things. It's the river, of course, like anything, right? It opens up all these other... Doors and windows we don't see coming.
0: <laughs> what was the relationship between the river and, and directing you towards law school? Was there something specific that happened or something you learned? Or,
1: well, or was it I time was... For a change? You know, I was super... I was really interested in water policy, which was really mm. just started getting going, water issues in the South. <laughs> it really is one of those things where... If I had finished out my original intentions for law school, right, I was combining what's called Indian law and water law, which is kind of unheard of at the time when I went to law school in mm-hmm. 95. That was like, what? Like, you want to combine those things? Of course, that's everything today, right? right but just to the Supreme Court is here in the case with the Navajo, which, in fact, I even thought, you know, I have, a, I have something in a file from a research I did for a similar kind of thing. So I bet that the attorney for the Navajo would really like me to send her. Wow.
2: Oh man! <laughs> like,
1: anyway, so, anyway, so um, so I working with the working with the Hopi's, and I also did this internship. I, did, I was interested in native grasses, cedars, thing. and David Packard, a few of Packard Computers, um, was funding this native grass restoration project he owned a lot of acreage in montana Mm -hmm. and also in california and i met a person involved with that and i was super interested in it and so i did like this internship between trips one summer and he mr packard and i were talking one day and he was telling me about all his plant patents and i was like what do you mean you have patents to the plants or plants and he's like, I've been buying the patents. And so he was telling me one of the patents that he owned was, was blue corn. And I knew from the Hopis, you know, blue corn was like their thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, there's no way you could, how can you patent genetic material? I had this great conversation with him that entirely pissed me off, right? <laughs> Because if you own the patents of something, you can control its use. That's why you own the patents. I've never right? heard it's, of that. That's crazy. So, Anyway, I'm with the Hopis on a trip and we have a bag of blue corn chips as a snack. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And they are like looking at the decoration on the bag and they're like, that's the corn kachina. And they're like, how can they use our corn kachina to market their chips? And all of the, I'm thinking about all this stuff. And so I originally thought, (laughs) I originally thought I was going to go to law school to be a patent attorney. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, like, you need to be an engineer to be a patent attorney, yeah. right? So anyway, um, the Hobie tribe wrote one of my recommendations for law school. Wow. Um, the the head of uh, resource management for the uh, for Grand Canyon National Park wrote the other one. Uh, somehow I took to LSAT and got in law school. <laughs> and um, anyway, so that was my connection with how I ended up going to law school. Um, I didn't get to finish in so my second year second semester of my second year, my father um, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's Mm. and lived on the other side of the country. And so that was like a disruption of me going to law school. And I thought I'd go back and I didn't. So I got, you know, life happened after that.
0: (laughs) I'm always (laughs) uh, intrigued and I'm not sure that I'm much. maybe there's an answer for this. I don't know if there (laughs) is, but when people have all of these life experiences that, you know, some are ones that we all have, others like in the ones we just talked about in your case are ones that are, you know, pretty unique to a small population of people. But I'm, I'm always curious as to sort of how your mind opens up enough to recognize these opportunities when they present themselves. Because I feel like I'm, and I'm kind of going through this now personally, but trying to figure out like what what is it in my life that's really going to fill me up? I mean, yes, obviously I love making chocolate, but right now, like that's not going to keep the lights on for me. But how you like do you do you have any advice to people on how you sort of recognize or I don't know, put a put a needle in some of those things that come into our lives that maybe most of us don't pay attention to? Does that make sense? It does.
1: I think I think for me I've always felt like that not only, not only could I do things my own way, but I should, mm. that, that it, there was no value in me doing a life that didn't have meaning to me. Mm. Right. Like I could mm. see other people doing lives and, and I could sort of try on the idea of those lives. Right. We do that. When I was younger, I thought I'm, to be a pathologist right i'm going to study science and do these things and and then you have those days where something tugs at you and Mm -hmm. you realize wait am i am i going in that direction because i wanted to or because i thought that was that was this box or something i'm supposed to fit in Mm -hmm. that's really compelling right we have everybody our parents our families School, society, or like it's we're all much more easily managed, right? If we mm-hmm. fit into these right. prescribed doing things, and there again, there's nothing wrong with that. In some ways, I'm in some ways, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. I mean, my son, you know, Finn would tell you in a lot of ways, I'm a very traditional parent. I was a stay at home mom, mm-hmm. I wanted to be home with my child. That was that was meaning in my life when he was little, and we made sacrifices. You know, I had my little Etsy business and things to help bring in money, but, you know, we made sacrifices so I could stay home. So it was like, there's always this give and take. And for me, the feeling that this is meaningful to me without expecting a return on that meaning. Mm -hmm. And so my sister and family members who know me will say, well, you probably wouldn't want her bank account, right? Like, I live a pretty frugal life. Yeah. At the same time, I can say, and this is where I feel empowered about helping other makers be slow batch small, mm-hmm. you know, craft pocket makers is, I don't have any debt. The only debt I have right now is student loans from law school, okay, <laughs> which almost got canceled.
2: They almost got
1: canceled from uh, by I'm like, yeah, I mean, I don't have that much left to pay on them, but they were in that category of mm-hmm. loans that, like, they are, they ended up being quadruple the amount I took out on loan They were in that crazy, I don't know if you know about the whole student yes. thing. I'm yeah. in that category of those horrible loans that literally I've paid back way more than I ever borrowed, but sure. anyway, I'm paying those back, paying those back, but that's the only debt I have. I don't have any credit card debt. Mm-hmm. I tried a great Honda that paid off. i I paid it off early last week. I had like nine hundred dollars on it. I'm like, I'm paying it off hmm. because I financed it through Wells Fargo, and I was afraid they were going to of it. I'm just going to pay. My <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I'm able to help family members. I'm you know, mm-hmm. I'm I live a life that yes, I'm a human. There are things I want. Right there, I would, there are trips I'd like to take. Things I want to do. And it's like, you know, I have to work for those things Mm -hmm. and that's okay because for me, when I've experienced this, the things that I end up deciding I'm going to work in that direction are the things that I find meaning in. Mm -hmm. And so um, anyway, I just, yeah, I think, I think the thing is, is, I think you know, I read this recently. I can't remember all the categories. There's like these four different categories. I can't remember the first two, but the one that, that really, the last two stuck out to me. One is this kind of connection with people. Our relationships with people are everything. Mm-hmm. Nobody on their deathbed goes, I wish I had more no shoes. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish I had that whatever in my life. People are I think people look back and they wish they'd spent more time with their loved ones mm-hmm. or their friends, people who meant something to them. Right. right? So there's that that connection is key. And then there's this idea of benevolence. That we do something that impacts other people, even in tiny ways. And I'm a big believer even in the tiny ways right. where you, you know, You rave at your neighbor when they're taken out of the trash. That is an impact Mm -hmm. on someone where, you know, we're making craft chocolate and we're opening people's eyes that there are choices Mm -hmm. in their life, right? Like I am a big believer in that idea of benevolence and the whole purpose of benevolence is not a return, right? right? I'm not being kind to my neighbor because I'm going to get something. Mm -hmm. So that is bucking society, right? Because everything, right, is about, I give you this, and you give that back to me, right. and so you kind of have to buck that whole system, you know. And I don't know where, you know. Well, I do know where it came from. I think it came, so. My grandfather grew up in a in an old Southern family, like roots to the Civil War in ways I don't even want to talk about. Mm. And he was sent off. I think I told you he went to Davidson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. he was there three nights. His grandmother made him go. He was there three nights and he said, I'm leaving. I want to be an artist. Mm-hmm. And so he ran away from college mm-hmm. and he walked across the country and he would get on trains and he would shovel coal and he would make his way around the country. He ended up in Texas and he joined the Coast Guard. And, Three years later, his family hadn't heard of him for three years. They had no idea if he was dead or alive or where he was. And so they only found out where he was because the Coast Guard left him up, oh. right? So, yeah. And so he became a farmer. He was definitely, he was one of the kindest people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. People adore him. They just, all types of people looked up to him and adore him. And, he lived a very simple life and a life with meaning. And I think that I think that just as a child, I looked at that. He also was the person you we're know, watching something on T V and the person's climbing a mountain. He said to me, You should do that someday. Mm. <laughs> Nobody in the nineteen sixties people didn't say that to little girl. Right. You should be a mountain climber. And so he just gave I think me that permission, right? You could you could do something that you
0: want to do is really what he was saying, yeah. right? And yeah, I, I think, think – yeah, that's I'm, – I'm kind of going through some shifts in my life now trying to figure out like, you know, you start off – yeah, you start off following the instructions in the box that's provided to you as to how to be an adult. And that works for a lot of people, but – You know, I've, I don't know, I've just, I've reached a point recently where it's like, what is, what is, like, what, what is my, what is the meaning? Like, what am I, what am I doing? Like, what, what actually is going to fill me up and make me a better person for the world around me? And you sort of touched on it with your, you know, the, your, what you were saying about benevolence. And in, in the yoga world, there's a, and this is not just yoga, but this is where I've heard it is we're sort of like we're we're sort of a constant droplet into a still pond and when we our droplet goes in there's a ripple effect of everything that we do that that pervades out from us and it goes it's pretty intense right off the bat and then it starts to level out but it at some point it bounces off the shore and comes back and you know i think that that's something that i think about a lot is you know, what is your effect when I'm out running? I always try to say hi to everybody that I run by. And some people are like, Hey, what's up? Other people just are like, Meh. you know, and, and and that's okay. But I think about that a lot too. The people, I mean, we all have our things and I wake up in a crabby mood sometimes and maybe some people are just crabby all the time. But, you know, even just for a moment when I run by that person, that's like, doesn't say anything or just rolls their eyes at me or whatever, like that does have that negative effect on you where you're like, Oh, that sucks. Like, Oh, and then you like what I I look at my, I look at Newton a lot. And when, when we go by a dog with bad energy or something happens to him, he shakes it off. And he's literally shaking off like that perceived energy that he just got from the other dog or the, the bad attitude of the cat or whatever it might be. You know And I think? That's one thing that I've really tried to start to do is shake off a lot of things but trying to find that um that search for what does fill you up is it's a difficult one and I'm I'm envious of people that find it and can really live that because it's it's a like crazy powerful thing for them to then put out into the world around them so
1: yeah
0: It's pretty wild. Yeah, it is. I'm you know,
1: I'm not going to i def- <laughs> I definitely you know every everybody just has their I think at the core of everybody right we whatever you want to call it there there is that thing, the spark that makes us who we are, mm-hmm. and it's really you know kind of holding on to that even when we have no clue. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I can remember, okay, I'm a river guide. I've been in LA working for a producer and I'm, I had this life happening and I was doing triathlons and I was super happy in my life. Mm-hmm. Like, I would come home and there'd be like people at my house and it was just, I was mm-hmm. mountain biking and I just was like, it was everything I ever wanted. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, and then, you know, we found out okay you're pregnant and I was like oh what yeah like oh my gosh you know literally I just went on the couch for like a week like what 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 and it was interesting you know the doctor I went to see um, had suddenly me I went back to her I thought I had the flu I went to the doctor and she's like you're pregnant and I was like what and so I went back to her because I said, I just need to know what to do. I'm like, I, I love my life. I was not planning. Like I was mm-hmm. not planning this. Mm-hmm. How do you have a child? And you're not planning to have a child. Like that just seems so, so irresponsible. I was like, how do I do it? Like I'm not, I'm not equipped for this, you know? <laughs> like what am I going to do? I can't like meet it somewhere where I go on the river. What's going to happen? And so again, I, I saw the advice of somebody that wasn't like a family member or a friend right I just went to this doctor and um she was like what um you know you're 39 this might be it this might be the only time she goes that's all you need to think about if this is your only chance do you want to take it or not and that was the whole advice she gave me mm-hmm. and the time i was like what kind of advice is that? <laughs> like, what? Like, I know that, you know? And so but I thought about that. And that is the same thing every decision we make. Tyler, you guys going, we're gonna move. Mm-hmm. You're right in front of that decision. We're either gonna stay or we're gonna move. Right? And we always are hoping like just give me the answer. Like there's some crystal ball to tell us well, right. you're gonna move, or you're gonna love it. Or you're going to move, and you are going to want to head home. We're hoping for that crystal ball, and so there's that whole week. And so I do wonder, right? Of course, this is some kind of instinct. But when you are, when you are a a peregrine falcon baby, a fledgling, and you have never flown before, and your parent maybe maybe the mother and the father peregrine falcon has slapped their wings. You've seen them coming and going, bringing food. But you're on a nest on the edge of a cliff. (laughs) And you're supposed to just like spread your wings and go. Well, there is definitely a miracle. And I'm not a religious person, but there is a miracle in that taking off. Because the universe wouldn't have it set up any other way. Mm -hmm. Right? The, The hawk has to just go. And I know that people are like, look, animals, they are poor with the instinct of what to do and all that. But at the same time, I think that there's something else, some other kind of miraculous thing that just keeps us from completely crashing, that there's that power in that taking that step. And so, um, yeah, that's not that it's easy, right? You have to make the decision and then you follow it through. Even when you get to a decision, I'm a big believer, and you can go a direction and be like, nope, this is not right for mm-hmm.
0: right. me. Yeah, you know? I, think, I think that's sort of what I've started to come to in taking this down a relatively philosophical path, I guess. But,
2: yeah. you know, of,
0: <laughs> of, of sort of,
2: right.
0: you know, you, you get on a path and, and kind of going back to like the one that's in the instruction manual for adults. You get on the path and you think, well, I'm not happy here, but, you know, I've set up my life in such a way that this is how it's got to be. But I think you don't, I think sort of what I'm starting to realize is unless you from time to time make drastic changes and sort of reset your life or reset what you think your life is, you don't kind of start to figure some of those things out. And, you know, there's a, you need to put a pause on your ego. You need to kind of put a pause on what you think life is supposed to be and more focus on what you what you want it to be in the end but what's going to get you there and keep you filled up and keep you kind of being the most productive person that you can and kind of putting out the best ripples around you that you possibly can and i think that's a really hard decision to figure out so
1: yeah exactly
0: well this went deep pretty quick (laughs) um well look we've been talking for a while now i i really appreciate it i know that uh, you people come into our lives and we don't know why when i met you my my dog had just passed away and i couldn't figure out how to make chocolate and you know you've you've become such a valuable part of my life not just my constant, uh, you know, shoulder for chocolate questions. Um, (laughs) but you know, I think what you do for all of us, um, and I think all of your students would say the same thing is, you know, we're all so grateful and it's what, it's such an inspiration, the time you give to each and every person and you always give all of yourself to your chocolate, to your son, to your friends, to your students. And, um, you know, it's, it's always talking to you always kind of, fills some level of my cup back up. So um, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb, but thank you for all of us um, for everything okay. you do. So um, yeah. So just um, what are some of the ways people can find you um, and kind of sort of keep in touch with what's going on and maybe any future runs of chocolate bars that may end up out in the world and all of that? Well, um, they
1: can find me on Substack, that's my I started a Substack for the Next Batch last fall and it's just called the Next Batch. So you just go to Substack and you can or even just Google the Next Batch on Substack and you'll find it. And I write once a week there and that's been really fun because there are people outside of chocolate that are finding it. Mm. And um, so that's one way to find me and of course I have a website for the Next Batch School for people who are interested in chocolate making. That's there. And, um, yeah, that's the best place. As far as making chocolate, I'm actually, you know, we've kind of talked about before. Mm. I'm working on an idea. I'm still working on an idea of <laughs> a different drawing. <laughs> Every, I have too many backburners, right? <laughs> There's always like a fire in front of me. Like the next batch is like its own little fire all the time, yeah. right? But you got lots of fires. And, um, anyway, so um, but it is something that I'm working on. It's a little bit different. Uh, a direction of chocolate that I was interested in when I first started making chocolate. Mm-hmm. I would really like to pursue. And um, and so I just, it's the next direction for me to go, I think. It, so anyway, it'll be in chocolate. And of course, it's working with guzzle beans and all that. And Tyler, you will be the first to know. Oh, yay. Because <laughs> I really need to talk to you about All it. All right.
0: Um, and then what are your, where on Instagram or Facebook? Are you still doing much there?
1: I don't do any Facebook. I, the next batch has a Facebook page, but I've looked at the page like twice. Okay. I don't, yeah, I don't even, yeah. So I don't really do the Facebook thing. But on Instagram, um, the next batch. Cool. I think it's just called next batch.
0: I'll I'll put a link to it in the show notes yeah, for people. Yeah, and then
1: matte chocolate. But I'm you know like a lot of us I'm I'm less and less on Instagram Man. just because you know it's harder to be there now. There's so many ads and things, oh, but I'm yeah. there. People can find me there, and then the website.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'll make sure I put links to that and everything. So, um, well, Mackenzie, thank you so much for your time. I, Oh, I mean, I, I'm not kidding. We could talk for hours, but
1: um, oh, no, I love you. I can't
0: wait to come visit you. Yeah. Yeah. We're excited. <laughs> so, um, all right. Well, thank you very much. And, um, hopefully people start to check some of your stuff out.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Sarah. Tell, give her a hug. I will. Tell her a
0: hug. I will. I sure will. All right. Thanks. <laughs> thank you thanks thanks for listening to this episode of Om Travelers a huge thank you to Mackenzie for joining me make sure to find her at Map Chocolate and at The Next Batch School on Instagram and hurry over to her websites www.mapchocolate.com and www.thenextbatch.com also make sure to subscribe to her on Substack thenextbatch.substack.com. Thank you to Soul Rising for allowing us the use of his song The Journey for our intro and outro. Make sure that you find him on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you find music. And as always, don't forget to visit our website, www.nostalgiachocolates.com for the show notes, and of course, to grab as much chocolate as your shopping cart can handle.